two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thanks again, Becky, and welcome to yet another edition of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm Sean Gallagher, the other co-host. And today we are wrapping up our Sorkin Fest, looking at the movies that Aaron Sorkin has written. And today we're going to talk about Bullworth and Enemy of the State. Now, some people might ask, well, his name wasn't on either of those movies, so why are you talking about them? Well, because they were movies that he was a script doctor on, or as he refers to in the introduction of the West Wing script book, those are movies that he did day work on. Now, a script doctor is someone who gets called in to doctor or fix something in the script. On very rare occasions, it's done by the writer. We, Claude and I, that is, have talked about one of those rare occasions, The Godfather, where Francis Ford Coppola, who directed but also co-wrote the movie, brought in Robert Town to write the scene where Don Corleone tells Michael Corleone, I never wanted this for you. But that's rare. Most of the time, it's a studio executive or a producer or a director or even the star who brings in a writer to doctor the script. Sometimes they're rewriting the entire script, but more often than not, they're brought in to shore up a character, usually the lead, or fix a couple scenes, especially the ending, or in the case of a lot of what Sorkin did to rewrite a lot of the dialogue. Now, near as I can tell from what I've researched, Sorkin did uh, day job work or script doctoring on five movies. The first one he did was Schindler's List where he was asked to do a dialogue wash. That's how it was described on IMDb. And Schindler's List is a great movie, and it deserves to have its own episode, which we will do as soon as we figure out another movie to pair it with. I'm sure there are a lot we could do, but anyway. And then also... There's only a couple scenes in there that I would say have Sorkin's fingerprints on them. I think mostly he submitted to the style of the movie that was already there. Now, the next doctoring jobs he did were all after The American President was released, where, as he says in the West Wing script book, right after the movie was released, he spent time in a um, clinic to get over his cocaine addiction. And he was having a lot of trouble coming up with original ideas. So the doctoring or the day work was a way that he could work without having to come up with original ideas. And he did work on the dialogue for Michael Bay's movie, The Rock, with Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery, and Ed Harris. And there are a lot of typical Sorkin lines in that movie, but 
I'm not a big fan of that movie. <laughs> okay. So we're going to pass over that. And then he did a rewrite of Excess Baggage, which is the movie that Elisa Silverstone did after she hit it big with Clueless. And again, not such a great movie. I mean, it's not terrible. I don't hate it or anything, but considering how good Clueless was, it can only be seen as a disappointment. So maybe he elevated it to the level of not terrible. (laughs) Well, he was brought in to shore up the relationship between Silverstone's character and Benicio del Toro's character, who plays the guy who accidentally kidnaps her when he carjacks the car that she's locked herself in the trunk of. But as I said, it's not a great movie. So we're going to turn our attention to two movies that he doctored that I'd actually do like that both came out in 1998. And we're going to start with Bullworth. Okay. Before we do, before we get into these, I I think there's, there's an important distinction that we have failed to share with our listeners when it comes to writing credits. Okay. Because there are times when you look in the screen and this works in TV too, is when you look at the screen and you see the writing credit, you're going to see the names. If there's more than one writer, the names get paired up in one of two different ways. You either see so-and-so and and the word and so-and-so, or you see so-and-so ampersand and so-and-so. And there's a difference between the two, okay? If you, right. see, if you see the word and, that means that the two writers worked on it separately. And if you see the ampersand, it means they worked on it together. So if you look at those credits uh, for the last episode from Malice and Moneyball, you're going to see Aaron Sorkin is credited as a separate writer. In this case, this week, we're going to be looking at films where he wasn't credited at all. Right, because the Writers Guild has a very stringent, for lack of a better word, they have stringent rules about who gets credited for a particular screenplay. And if you didn't work on enough of the plot, the story, then you don't get credited for it. If you only did dialogue work or you know, shoring up a character, that's not really considered contributing to the story itself. Of course, there are also times when writers do doctoring work and they don't want the credit. They just want the money or they feel that the filmmaker changed too much of the movie because writers, as we mentioned last week, get no respect whatsoever, at least in Hollywood, that they don't want their name associated with the movie. They just want the money from it. And you see this happening on big budget movies. You won't see this happening a lot on independent movies or movies from other countries. Right. And the only thing I don't know is that rule may have changed at some point to what it is presently because one of the things i've noticed is is if you look at old comedies on tv like the honeymooners or i love lucy okay those episodes tended to have groups of writers who worked in pairs and in those cases you do see the word and but it was always like it was marvin marks and and uh i can't remember the other guy's name was stone 
who worked on Honeymooners, they always worked together on Honeymooners episodes, and you would see the word and between them. And similarly, whenever you saw pairs of writers on, on I Love Lucy, you would see the word and, but the fact is, those two guys worked on them together. Okay, so now um, that we've given you the background for everything, Claude's going to give us the plot description for Bullworth. Yeah, so Jay Bullworth, uh, played by Warren Beatty, is a Democratic senator from California who is facing a tough primary challenge. Uh, Bullworth was originally quite liberal, what they would call a Kennedy liberal at one time, but through a series of uh, overlapping commercial ads that over time we see he's begun to adopt some conservative stances on various policies, and it turns out that it's because he's begun to cave to political and financial pressure to some large corporations. When we first see him, it's just a few days before the primary election, and Bullworth is sitting alone in his office. The ads we've been seeing uh, are pieces of, they're on videotape that he's supposed to be reviewing, but instead he's just sitting there crying. We learn that he hasn't eaten or slept in three days. He meets with an insurance company representative named Graham Crockett, played by Paul Sorvino, to negotiate a huge insurance policy for himself with his daughter as the beneficiary. The policy is basically a payoff for Bullworth to bottle up a bill that would regulate the industry. Bullworth then arranges through a cutout man to have himself assassinated during a campaign run when he returns to California that weekend so that his daughter gets the payout. When he arrives in California, he discovers that his chief of staff, Dennis Murphy, uh, played by Oliver Platt, has arranged for the campaign to be filmed 24-7 by a C-SPAN crew. Now, Bulwark doesn't know when that bullet is coming, so he's prepared himself by drinking a lot on the plane. So when he arrives at a campaign event at a black church, he is both drunk and sleep-deprived, and he just starts spouting whatever he's thinking about rather than what he's supposed to say. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you vote Democrat or Republican because they're all in the pockets of the big corporations and screw the little guy. In a panic, Murphy pulls the fire alarm to clear the church, and shortly thereafter, Bulwark does much the same thing to a group of movie moguls in Beverly Hills, insulting them to their faces and asking them how much money they really need, given that what they produce is mostly crap. Thinking he's going to die very soon, Bulwark discovers that he's really enjoying making these honest campaign speeches, but he is also haunted by a shadowy figure in sunglasses and a leather jacket who's following them. He guesses that that's the assassin, and while he knows he's paid the guy to do the job, he might be having second thoughts about it. Now, a small group of women from the church have begun following him around, and now they get in the limo with him, and they lead him to an after-hours hip-hop club in Compton, where he smokes pot, he dances a lot with a girl from the church named Nina, played by Halle Berry, and he is generally exposed to a whole other culture in his own district that he has never really encountered before. Nina takes him home to her South Central LA neighborhood where he meets up with grade schoolers selling crack and he's introduced to her family members, that is, whatever family members who remain because so many have been lost to gun violence. Meanwhile, Murphy and his assistant Feldman, played by Joshua Molina, are amazed that this burst of honesty is actually playing well with the voters and they're trying to find a way to capture this energy. Bullworth, in the meantime has decided to cancel the hit on himself but the cutout has a heart attack and it doesn't appear that the message has gotten through to the assassin. Bullworth intervenes with some crack-dealing kids by buying them ice cream, and as he walks away from them, they are intercepted by a pair of racist cops. So now he sees firsthand the kind of abuse they're treated to. He steps in and the police recognize him, apologize to the boys, and they drive off. 
Bullworth learns that the boys are working for LD, played by Don Cheadle, and LD explains to him that he provides a sense of structure and opportunity that they're not going to get anywhere else. We also learn during the film that Nina's brother owes LD a lot of money and that she's the assassin who's been hired to kill Bullworth. If she completes the job, she can pay off the debt to LD. Bullworth makes it to a television interview arranged by Murphy in which he basically repeats things that have been said to him by both Nina and LD about the lives of poor black people and how various American institutions have failed them. LD sees the interview and we see some wheels turning in his head. The interview ends when a studio light comes crashing down, nearly killing Bullworth, and in the melee that ensues, we learn that the shadowy figure is a paparazzo photographer, not an assassin. Bullworth escapes with Nina, still not knowing who she really is. He finally confesses to her the plans to have himself assassinated and the fact that he's changed his mind, but the assassin doesn't know it. Nina reveals herself to be the assassin and tells him she won't carry out the job. Bullworth is so relieved that he finally falls asleep for the first time in about five days, and he remains asleep for a day and a half, basically sleeping through the primary election day until after the polls close. Nobody but Nina and her family know where he is, though, and word finally gets out around the time he awakens. LD figures out a way for Nina's brother to work off his debt. Bullworth has won the primary in a landslide and, in fact, has been written in by a significant percentage of voters as a presidential candidate. During his victory speech, in which he accepts the this mandate, Bullworth is shot, and we're led to believe that it's Crockett, the insurance company executive, who shot him. What happens to Bullworth is not clear in the end. Uh, the film ends with a vagrant who we have seen repeatedly throughout the film standing outside Cedars Sinai Hospital, uh, coaching Bullworth, who may or may not even be inside, to be a spirit rather than a ghost. The vagrant then turns to the audience, breaking the fourth wall and ask them to do the same. And we, you should mention, of course, that the vagrant is played by Amiri Baraka. Yes. Now, we should right up front mention the circumstances under which Beatty made this film. The studio that released this was 20th Century Fox, who is now owned by Disney, but at the time was owned by Rupert Murdoch, who, although he supposedly did not participate in any of the day-to-day decisions on what movies got made, ran the uh, company towards his conservative leanings. And Beatty's previous film as director was the adaptation of the Dick Tracy comic strip. And he had tried to peddle that to Fox, who passed on it. And Dick Tracy turned out to be a hit, although it took some time for that to happen. And Fox said to him, okay, here's the deal. You come to us with a pitch. And if we like your pitch and you can make this movie for no more than $30 million, you will get final cut, which is the one thing all directors want more than anything else. Final cut is the what goes out to the theaters or to the streaming channel nowadays is everything that the director wanted. No one else is allowed to interfere with that. And so what Beatty did was say, okay, the movie I want to make is about a guy who is feeling suicidal, 
hires someone to kill him, changes his mind and falls in love. And it's a comedy. And they said, Fox, that has said, okay, if you can make that for $30 million, no more, you can make it for us and we'll give you final cut. Now, no mention <laughs> of any of the political subtext that's in the story, just the central idea of the guy wanting, to ki- wanting someone to kill him and then deciding to call it off. So while in general, I'm not really a big fan of subterfuge like that, the fact that Beatty was able to pull this over on Rupert Murdoch, I'll give him a pass. <laughs> okay. We should also mention the fact that this came out after a couple other politically themed comedies had come out around that same year. Early um, 1998, although it opened in January 1997 to qualify for the Oscars, there was Barry Levinson's Wag the Dog with Robert De Niro as a political consultant who convinces a Hollywood producer played by Dustin Hoffman to help fake a war with Albania so that the president will win the election and the sex scandal that's brewing won't come to immediate light. And then a month or two before Bullworth came out was Primary Colors, which was Mike Nichols' movie adaptation of the book written by Anonymous, although it later turned out to be Joe Klein, that was sort of um, lightly fictionalized, shall we say, movie about Bill Clinton's campaign to become president with John Travolta as the Bill Clinton figure, Emma Thompson as the Hillary Clinton figure, and a few other people. Interestingly enough, when Beatty was promoting the movie and... Beatty is not really good at promoting movies in general, but when he was promoting Bullworth, he was asked about those other two movies, and he said that, in his opinion, both of those movies were not about politics, but were about sex. And while he had no problems with sex being a topic for movies, he'd made a sex-themed comedy back in 1975 called Shampoo, which also had politics in it anyway, he wanted to stress that Bullworth was not about sex, but was about politics. And I, I get that. I mean, yes, it's definitely a more strongly political film than than the other two would be considered. Um, but I wouldn't, I don't know, I don't think I would consider Wag the Dog or Primary Colors to be non-political films. I, you know, the way, and we, we, we talked about this previously about, you know, Political films that had the baseball overlay, or baseball films that had a political overlay. It, 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 I, no, I don't see it that way. I mean, I, this is. I think all three of them could be viewed as, as quite political in their nature. I will say this: for Wag the Dog, although it is political in that it invites you to be very cynical about the government process and about how much lobbyists and consultants have taken over. The president could have been for any political party. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, you couldn't you could fit either of them in there and it would still make sense. And even in primary colors, the fact that it's based on Bill Clinton, you could conceivably make it about a candidate from the other party and still you wouldn't have to change much. Whereas with Bullworth, Warren Beatty is specifically going after the Democratic Party and saying is how the party has betrayed what it used to stand for. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't really make it about any other party than the Democratic Party. And that's brought right up in the beginning when he's watch when Boris is watching those campaign tapes. Now you'll see in his office a lot of photographs, including what's meant to be the young Bullworth with people like Bobby Kennedy and George McGovern. Right. Now in Hollywood movies, when you see photographs like that with the actor um, as a younger version being paired with the famous person, or even if he's meant to appear younger in something like that, that's done with what they used to call photo manipulation or touch-ups, what they now would call Photoshop. But there's no manipulation there. That's actually a younger Warren Beatty there yes. with Robert, McKenna, Robert Kennedy or George McGovern because he was very active in political circles back at the time. You know, he wasn't out marching on the front lines like Jane Fonda, for example, was, but he was working a lot behind the scenes for McGovern in 72, and he had made politically-themed movies before. I mentioned Shampoo. You might think of this as just this sex comedy, but it pointedly takes place on election night of 1968. Beatty's trying to make it clear that some people involved, the ones who don't care, are staying home and not voting at all, while the people who do care and are being involved are voting for Richard Nixon. And that's part of why Nixon won. And then you have genre, other genre movies he did, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which resembles a Western, but is really a parable about businessmen running in, coming in and taking over. And then you also have the parallax view, which is about a corporation arranging hits on whoever they don't like. And then, of course, Beatty also directed, co-wrote, and co-starred in Reds, which is about the Russian Revolution. So... This is not his first time in the park when it comes to making politically themed movies. No, and it's worth mentioning. I mean, those films, some of the ones you, you mentioned there, I mean, McCabe and Mrs. Mill, that goes back to what, 71? Yes. Okay. Reds was the early 80s. So he's been doing this like pretty much throughout his career. Yes. And another interesting thing about Beatty in this movie as well 
Benny, I sort of lump in with Robert Redford in the fact that they're both actors who were matinee idols before they became actors, who have been very active politically behind the scenes. Redford, of course, is uh, very big in environmental circles. And yet, when it comes to their films, they've always been very careful about the image they project on screen. And yet, the interesting thing about Beatty is that every so often, he's willing to mess with that image. And you see a clear indication of that in the opening five minutes of Bullworth when he's watching those uh, campaign ads that he's in. And in the ads, he's looking very composed, very statesmanlike. And while he's watching, he's crying. No, he's bawling. And he looks totally wrecked. Now, you can chalk that up to the fact that he's been drinking and he hasn't slept, he hasn't eaten. But you don't see many stars of Beatty's generation presenting themselves like that. No, you don't. And, and, and you know, then we get the whole, oh, this is such a brave thing for him to do. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, some of the, the more nakedly political films that, that some of these guys do, and you, you mentioned Robert Redford, and that had me thinking about Sneakers, which is a very who watches the watchers kind of kind of film. And it was a you know fun little comedy. And it just didn't seem to get the traction that it was probably expected of it. And the same thing happened here. You know, this movie didn't even make back its budget originally, um, although it did get a lot of great reviews and whatever. I think maybe maybe um, um, primary colors just kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the air for it. Well, the one thing that did hit and also caused a little controversy, which we should get into, is the soundtrack. The soundtrack was a big hit. Yeah. Especially um, the song that got a lot of airplay on the radio and MTV, Ghetto Superstar. And you didn't mention in your summation, but Bullworth once he starts speaking truth, as he would put it, he starts rapping. Yeah. (laughs) And today we would talk about the fact that here's this middle-aged white guy trying to exploit hip hop. And there were some reviewers at the time who were uncomfortable with this especially with the fact that Beatty was embracing gangster rap. And while I can see their point, the one thing that I would say is that no one's saying he's actually the next Chuck D, first of all. And second of all, again, the man hasn't had any sleep is only eating in spurts. And junk food at that. And junk food, yes. So he's just doing what comes off the top of his head. So he's not going to sound, 
you know, like a good rapper. And the movie doesn't make him out to be. They're just making him out to be that he is trying to say something that really doesn't get said in political circles in general and democratic circles in particular, which is the fact that he, I, and some other people feel that when the Democratic Party decided to run toward the middle in the 90s in order to win the presidential election and stay in power, they left behind a lot of their core base and their core principles. Right. And I, and I get that. I kind of, I gave that a pass because yeah, a first you're right. He's not presented as a, and as a especially good rapper at all. And in fact, at one point it's played for a joke when one of the kids says, is that how white people rap? <laughs> and, and, yeah. but, but, but also you, you've got this guy who's in a mentally altered state because he's sleep deprived, because he's, you know, been drinking a lot because he is, has been smoking marijuana and he's been exposed to all these different, different things. He's been watching the TV. And in fact, the, during some of the meetings that he's taking in his office, he's not necessarily giving it a hundred percent of his attention. He's got a remote in his hand. He's like banging on the TV remote and just changing from channel to channel, to channel, most of which is not even actual programming. It's all like infomercials and ads and that kind of thing. Then he, he comes in and he goes into the club. And so he's now he's exposed to like, you know, funky lighting and very loud, um, gangster rap and and that kind of thing so yeah at some point that is going to alter your mind a little bit and so this is how he starts to channel it whereas he starts expressing himself in rap it's not great rap but it's rap nonetheless and and so people are buying it and nobody is and nobody in the film is 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 show is reading this as anything other than an aberration of his behavior it's not he's pandering to this audience it's what the hell is he doing? Why is he doing it? You know, it, it, they, they don't even look upon it with, with any sort of a cynical eye. Right. Now, um, somewhere along the line, if you're listening, you might think, well, yeah, this is interesting and all, but what does this have to do with Aaron Sorkin? Well, Sorkin was brought in by Beatty, who is officially credited with the screenplay with Jeremy Pixar who ironically was an uncredited writer on Reds to help shore a lot of it up, or as he puts, puts it in the West Wing script book introduction, I pitched in on Bullworth. And he wasn't the only one. James Toback, who wrote Bugsy, which Beatty had been in earlier in the decade, was also an uncredited writer on the film. And you can see... Some of the uh, dialogue is definitely Sorkin-esque. For example, when Bullworth is in his office meeting with the cutout that you mentioned, his name is Vinny, by the way, and he's played by Richard Serafian, who is, uh, has acted in a lot of films, but has also been a director, uh, best known for me anyway, as the director of the original Vanishing Point from 1971. And they're talking about the hit, or as they put it, the weekend research project. Right. At one point, Vinny says, you know, you still haven't told me who this guy is. And Beatty said, and Bowler says, I thought you didn't want to know who the guy is. And, and uh, Vinny's like, yeah, 
I don't have to know from nothing. You talk, you want to talk to me, you talk to Davers, I want to talk to you, I talk to Davers. I don't have to know anything except for one thing. And Bowler says, what's that? I got to know who this guy is. That's a very Sorkin-esque exchange. That's definitely a Sorkin-esque construction, yeah. And then um, there are a lot of scenes between uh, Bullworth and Murphy that are very Sorkin-esque. And by the way, Oliver Platt would later end up on the West Wing as uh, Oliver Babish, the president's uh, special counsel. And Molina, of course, would end up on Sports Night and The West Wing as well. Josh Molina, who plays Feldman. And instead of the walk and talk, you get the run and talk. Yeah. Because Bullworth, when he's going to these meetings or when he's leaving the airport and he thinks someone is going to kill him, he's actually walking very fast or running to the places where he needs to go. And Murphy and Feldman are running to catch him to uh, do their conversation. And, and, and I think the, um, the other two places where it seems kind of obvious is the spots where the characters get to make the big speech. Okay. Where Anita gets to do her thing about, um, well, it starts with Huey Long and, um, LD gets to do his speech about the, how the American system has basically failed uh, poor black people. Yeah. Now, Sorkin, it should be said, um, he was one of those people who was uncomfortable with the hip hop angle. Now, whether or not it's because he thought this was exploitation or just because when it comes to popular culture, he's always been a couple decades behind the times. <laughs> Who could say? Yeah, and, and speaking of which, I I did have a little bit, only a little bit of a problem with the soundtrack. Um, and, and in this respect, is that there were times when the music in the scenes was diegetic, which means it was natural to the scene. It was actually going on, and the characters were hearing it too. And then there were other times when it was not. And there were a lot of times when it wasn't really being made clear which you were getting. And I, I didn't always appreciate that. But what I did like is I know that, that um, Inyo Morricone was asked to do a, um, a soundtrack for this film. And he did a big, beautiful thing that came out to like nearly an hour's worth of music. And most of it got thrown out except for at the end. And that's basically where the rap music stops. And it stops as he falls asleep. And then we go into Morricone's score. And that's basically where the transformation starts to happen, where he he starts to return. Well, he's asleep. But during his sleep, he starts to return to his old self, but not quite. And And really, it's only in those last, what, 10, 15 minutes of the film that we hear that we hear the score as being anything other than rap music. And I did like that. I, I did like that part of it. But um, I don't know. I just, be, I just because the source of the music wasn't always especially clear, which meant for me that I wasn't really sure what are we trying to underline with this music during this scene. Does that make sense? I get that, but it didn't really bother me. What bothered me more is that in Beatty's attempt to show just how much the African-American community has been marginalized by the Democratic Party. 
in their run to the center, there are some pretty patronizing scenes in here. The scene, for example, where Beatty runs into the little, um, the young black kids, and he takes them out for ice cream. Mm -hmm. You know, that bothered me a lot. Now, you can argue that it's partially redeemed by the fact that they get to curse out the cops at the end when the cops realize who Bullworth is. But it didn't really do that for me. And then also the fact that Don Cheadle's character, LD, only comes to this realization that he needs to do something different after hearing Bullworth speak what he does or rap what he does. Again, that came off pretty patronizing to me. Now, I can't say for sure whose idea that was, so I'm not going to pass judgment on that. But overall, those scenes are are among the weak spots of the movie for me. Yeah, I actually, I kind of agree with you because I would have liked to have seen where where the transition takes place between where he offers to buy them the ice cream and the next thing you know, they're just kind of coming out of the store eating ice cream. And, and I would have liked to have seen, you know, basically how they, how they talked, how he talked them into it. Because at that point, the last thing we saw before they're in the store with the ice cream is one of the little kids who's got a gun in his belt and he's pulling it out. So, I, I would have loved to have seen how, how we moved from one place to the other. Um, the other thing I also kind of get, um, I, I just think it was interesting because it wasn't until LD basically heard his own words coming out of Bullworth through the TV that maybe he got a handle on this could actually happen. It's like, well, this guy's kind of adopting what I have to say. You know, again, I get it. I don't necessarily buy it 100%. I don't know if it's pandering specifically, but I, I understand where people would have a problem with that. I do want to stress, aside from those problems, you know, I think this is a really interesting movie. I remember when I saw the trailer for this, uh, because I think it only broke out a month before the movie was released, which was in May of 1998. And I remember thinking this is either going to be the greatest movie ever made or a complete disaster. And it's not the greatest movie ever made, but it's not a disaster. No, it's pretty good. Actually. I, 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 I was kind of disappointed when I, cause I saw this, I saw this on video. Um, because at, at the time, at first, it, when it first came out, I just I wasn't very I just wasn't immersed in much media at all, frankly. And so it took me a little bit of catching up time to to get to get to this one. And so it had to be in the early two thousands when I actually rented this film. And uh, yeah, we did that, kids, and uh, and watched it, and I liked it a lot. So when I started doing some of the research for today. You know, to find out that it didn't even make back its budget was a little bit of a surprise for me. Beatty, unfortunately, after Dick Tracy, as far as box office goes, he had um, was no longer considered a viable um, star at the box office, even though he was a name in certain quarters. 
he wasn't considered a star. You know, Bugsy also didn't make back its budget. And the last movie he did before Bullworth, Love Affair, was also not a big hit. So I can sort of see that. But at the same time, now I don't remember what it was up against that the weekend that it opened. It may have been up against something that performed really strong. But I do think it was a shame that it didn't do as well. But it became a cult hit later. So... I guess we should be thankful for that. Yeah, and I guess, as I said earlier, it might have been just a little bit of fatigue at that point because you had you had primary colors and you had Wag the Dog, and it's like, oh, my God, one more political movie that we got to deal with here. Why don't we take a quick break, and we will be right back. Okay, so next we're going to talk about Enemy of the State, which came out the same year as Bullworth came out late in the year, and Claude's going to give us a summation of that. Well, as the film opens, Congressman uh, Phil Hammersley, who is played by an uncredited Jason Robards, has just arrived in the park to play with his dog, where he encounters Thomas Reynolds. Uh, Reynolds is an official from the National Security Agency, and he's played by John Voight. Reynolds is there to take one last shot at convincing Hammersley and or his caucus to vote in favor of counterterrorism legislation that would vastly expand the uh, surveillance powers of U.S. intelligence agencies. Hammersley believes that this would have a devastating impact on citizens' privacy, so he refuses. Reynolds has Hammersley killed on the spot and arranges for it to look like he died from natural causes. Now, what they don't realize right away is that the murder was captured on videotape by a wildlife camera. When uh, Daniel Zavitz, the camera's operator, who is played by Jason Lee, is reviewing the tape, he discovers the incident and he calls a journalist friend of his. Unfortunately, the NSA is already on to him and they've tapped his phone so they know that he has the tape and they, that he's seen it before they could get to him. Before he can get the tape to his friend, he makes a digital copy of it and he stashes it in a handheld video game. Only moments ahead of Reynolds' men, he flees the apartment with them in hot pursuit. During the chase, Zavitz bumps into an old friend, Robert Dean, who's played by Will Smith, and sneaks the video game into Dean's shopping bags without his knowledge. D, uh, Zavitz then runs away, still being chased, and he winds up getting struck by a fire truck. So now Reynolds' crew thinks that Dean and Zavitz are in cahoots, so they raid Dean's house and they plant a whole slew of surveillance devices, including several in his clothing and his personal effects. Then they send out false evidence that Dean is in cahoots with the mafia and, leave, and having an affair with his ex-girlfriend, Rachel Banks, who is played by Lisa Bonet. Dean's life goes into a spiral as he loses his job, his wife, she's kicked him out so he's got no home, and he can't stay in a hotel because all of his accounts are frozen. Now, Dean, for his part, thinks that mafia kingpin Pauly Pintero is behind all of this because of his involvement with another case. In that case, he had gotten help from a contact of Banks, a guy known as Brill. Dean sets up a meeting with Brill, but the NSA is wise to the meeting and sends him in a an imposter. The real Brill, however, rescues Dean and gets uh, rid of a bunch of the tracking devices in his clothes. Brill, incidentally, is played by Gene Hackman. The NSA kills Banks and frames Dean for the murder. Dean realizes where the disc is and he gets a hold of it. Brill decrypts the file, identifying Reynolds as one of the people in the video. But when the NSA raids Brill's hiding place and the disc is destroyed, while well, Brill tells Dean that his best move is to drop off the grid any way he can, the way he did 18 years ago. But Dean, 
wants to get his life back. Now, Brill, whose real name is Edward Lyle, and he used to work for the NSA, but I'm going to keep calling him Brill for the purpose of this here. They decide to engage in some high-tech guerrilla warfare. They trail another supporter of the surveillance bill and record him having an affair with his aide. They hide an NSA bug in the congressman's room in a place where it will be found so that the NSA will investigate the tapping. Brill also deposits large sums of money into Reynolds' bank account, so it looks like he's taking bribes. Brill then contacts Reynolds to set up an exchange of the video, which the NSA doesn't know A, was converted to a disc, and B, it's subsequently been damaged, in the hope that they can get a recording of Reynolds incriminating himself. Reynolds' men ambush the meeting, and they capture both Brill and Dean, demanding the tape. Dean tells him that the tape is in the hands of Paulie Pintero and directs them to his restaurant. What the NSA doesn't know is that the restaurant is under FBI surveillance, and they're very interested now in who's going into the place. Dean uses some misleading language to convince Pintero, who is played by also uncredited Tom Sizemore, that Reynolds is after a different videotape, and the ensuing argument turns into a huge firefight. The FBI raids the restaurant and Brill manages to escape while Dean is rescued and the conspiracy starts to emerge. We close on Dean and his wife watching a news report about the surveillance bill being dropped for the time being, although all the dirty tricks are being covered up. And Dean gets a goodbye message from Brill through his television, suggesting that Brill is now in some tropical location. Okay, now we should mention that the congressman that he's trolling is not just someone connected to the bill. He's the Congressman Albert. He's either the architect of the bill or the public face of the bill, Mm -hmm. because you see him being interviewed all the time about the bill in question. Now, I can't say everything, man. (laughs) Now, this movie, as I said, came out in the wintertime or late fall of 1998. That is three years before Mm 9-11, and also a little more than three years before the Patriot Act was passed. So this is kind of scary that this came out before that, that this predicted a lot of what would happen in government. It is, yeah. And not only that, it came out in a movie that's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Now, Bruckheimer was one of the three biggest producers that emerged in the 1980s, along with his partner, Don Simpson, whom he worked with up until, I think, The Rock uh, was their last joint movie together because Simpson died of a cocaine overdose around that time. And the other one was Joel Silver. And Bruckheimer produced a lot of these big, flashy action movies from the 80s and 90s. And then, although he's continued to produce movies, he's also moved on to television. And he's made his imprint on a lot of TV shows, including CSI, NCIS, all of these what are now referred to in some circles as copaganda shows, meaning (laughs) cop propaganda shows where the cops are always the good guys. And he is, 
I gather, politically conservative in real life. So the fact that he's producing this movie that is speaking against acts, um, acts of Congress like the Patriot Act is also kind of interesting. It's also directed by Tony Scott, who made a lot of those big action movies of the 80s and 90s and up through his death. And I have to say, personally, I was never a big fan of his. I always thought that the movies that they made were dumb, loud, filled with exploitative violence and more than a bit of misogyny involved. And the one thing I will say in Scott's credit is that a lot of the movies he made did have an African-American lead at the center, and I would give him more credit for that were it not for the fact that the only one of those movies that he made with an African-American lead that I liked, and I'm including all the movies he made with Denzel Washington and the Beverly Hills Cop sequel he made with Eddie Murphy. If I liked any of those movies, I would give him a lot more credit. The only <laughs> one I like is Enemy of the State because it curtails a lot of Scott's excesses because he's doing them in the service of the story for the first time. Yeah. I, 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 I you know, this, this film had a bunch of different writers take a pass on it and i kind of have to wonder and maybe you know this where aaron sorkin was in the chain because you've got you've got one credited writer okay um and that would be david marconi but you you also have um tony gilroy you have henry bean and you have aaron sorkin and the, and all of them are uncredited on rewrites of this script and i don't if, if Sorkin is in there, he's pretty well diluted. I think you hear him in some of the banter going back and forth between some of the characters. But for the most part, I, I kind of lose him here. Funny you should ask, <laughs> because I actually was able to pick out some very Sorkin-esque exchanges. One of them was even in the trailer when um, after they Brill and uh, Dean leave the... Uh, leave Brill's hideout that he's just blown up. And Dean says, what the hell is happening? And Brill says, I blew up the building. And Dean says, why? And uh, Brill says, because you made a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's to me, that's a very Sorkin S line. And then there's also um, the scene where uh, the first scene where Dean and Rachel Banks, who's played by Lisa Bonet are having lunch together and they're talking about the fish. And to me, that's very Sorkin-esque yeah. uh, dialogue there. And then there's also the scene where uh, Dean gets called into his offices by his boss, who's mm -hmm. played by an uncredited Philip Baker Hall. And they mention about the fact that his name has been mentioned as being part of a holding company with ties to the Piezo family. And is that true? And Dean says, 
Oh, yeah, sure. And the other guy with him says, you admit it? Absolutely. Everything except being part of this holding company or having anything whatsoever to do with the Piazzo family. You know, that's very Sorkin-esque dialogue there. And I would also say, although in the West Wing script book, he says that his... Sorkin says that his contribution was mostly to Will Smith's dialogue, that when Thomas Reynolds gets called in along with all of the quote-unquote department heads about the fact that Congressman Albert's hotel room was bugged, that the guy who's giving a speech about wanting to know the history of the device and wanting to know who planted it, that sounded to me very Sorkin-esque as well. I think there was that. And, and, and I would say just, just some of the back and forth between, as you mentioned, um, between Will Smith and Lisa Bonet. But I also think some of what we heard that went on between, um, between Dean and his wife, Regina, who's played by Regina King, there, there yeah. were just little echoes of because it, it, it reminded me a little bit of some of the stuff that you would hear from West Wing between President Bartlett and his wife, Abby Bartlett. You know, the same kind of thing where they would just kind of like do these funky little not quite insults, but, you know, in a fun way or, or some of the stuff that he would say about his son. You know, right. you know, just yeah. just kind of goofing around with, you know, well, you know, if you ever you don't want to stay over at your friend's house for, you know, the next night or until the end of the century. Well, that's fine with me. And yes. that that kind of brought it in for me. Yeah. So, you know, I don't say that Sorkin had anything to do with the plot or anything like that, but I do think you can see his fingerprints on a lot of the dialogue. Now, the one big connection this movie has that we should mention is that a lot of people, myself included, see this as sort of a spiritual successor to one of the great underrated movies of the 70s, The Conversation. Yes. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman as a wiretap expert. As a matter of fact, when the NSA is going through all the photographs in their database, to try and figure out who Brill really is. The photograph that comes up of Brill is Gene Hackman's photo from the character he played in the conversation. Yeah. So it's not a big stretch to think that his character eventually, from that movie, eventually decided to join the NSI. Not only that, but the scene where... Uh, Dean and Rachel Banks are meeting in the park and she finally consents to tell him about Brill and she also admits that she's in love with him rather obliquely. That scene is very reminiscent of the opening scene in the conversation mm -hmm. where Gene Hackman's character is... and his team are listening in to two people as they walk around the park. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of parks. All right. I get, I get to pull in my Baltimore knowledge here. Okay. 
is um, a lot of it was actually quite accurate. Okay, when they said that they were in the the southeast uh, part part of town and and in the industrial area, they mostly photographed in that area. They were not doing. They were not playing fast and loose as far as that's concerned. The the some of the places that they use, like the coal field, is not quite as close to the train yard as they would have you believe. But other than that, it really wasn't that bad. Um, and I'll say this, this is like a kind of a personal connection, but the park where where um, Dean and Banks met, okay, which is called, it's it's, it's Washington Square, it's called, um, and there is like that tall statue with Washington up on top of it. That is just a few blocks from the school where I work. So that was kind of cool to see. And there's also the scene where, um, where Brill and Dean are in the car and Brill kicks him out of the car and then lets him back in. And we get a long shot of the city, and I suddenly realized where that was. Now, what they make it look like is that there is like a highway crossing over another highway, and and that highway is one of several highways crossing over. But in fact, all of those roads crossing over actually go to and from residential neighborhoods. So it's not the high-speed road that you think he's being left out on and then being brought back into. And the road underneath it is uh, actually Route 40, which terminates just a few hundred yards behind where the cameraman is standing. So it's, it's, it's considered the road to the highway to nowhere. You can actually look that up um, because they expected it to meet up with the main route of, um, of, of, of Highway 40 further down and the work got stopped because of political pressures and a bunch of other things. So what happens is you've got this one stretch. It's like no more than maybe a half, three quarters of a mile long where it's a speed limit 55 from the center of town to the middle of this residential neighborhood. And then everything stops and you get dumped out in the middle of, oh, houses and row homes and, and that kind of thing. So that was kind of interesting to see. And that also is just a short distance from where I work. And then the other thing, the, um, the, the, the convenience store where Brill buys the snacks and uh, Dean makes the phone call from outside, um, now that was described as being on a street called McLean. Now there is a street McLean. It's McLean Boulevard in Baltimore City, but it is entirely residential. There are no convenience stores anywhere along its length. There is some retail stuff at the Northern Terminus, which is in the county, um, but that would be about it. But that particular store I have been in many times, all right? It is actually a local chain of, of convenience stores called Royal Farms, which if you've ever watched Homicide, the TV show, they have mentioned many, many times. And um, that, is, that is a Royal Farm just off of uh, I-95 at the O'Donnell Street exit. And you can it's been renovated since then, so it won't look exactly the same. But yes, you can go to the Royal Farms where they shot Enemy of the State. Okay. There's my extensive Baltimore knowledge at work there. Oh, also okay. the building that they show is Baltimore's police headquarters is in fact Baltimore Police Headquarters. Okay, now well, now I'm going to talk about the casting knowledge that I have. Okay. Now um, I remember that when back when Entertainment Weekly used to do these big glossy fall previews that Scott mentioned in the preview section for this movie that he noticed that when he was researching the movie and going to visit the CIA and the Pentagon and places like that, that a lot of the people who are working in those types of agencies 
we're all very young guys mm-hmm. and all very and all white guys, white young guys. So that's why you see a lot of young actors in um, top working for Thomas Reynolds. You have uh, Lauren Dean who plays the respectable member of the team. We'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. He's all, he's the one inside uh, government. And then you have uh, Barry Pepper, the guy who plays the guy who kills uh, Com- Congressman Hammersley at the beginning. He had made his mark literally and figuratively earlier in the year playing the sharpshooter in Saving Private Ryan. And then you have a couple of actors' sons as sort of the rough-edged members of the squad, Jake Busey, son of Gary Busey, and Scott Kahn, son of James Kahn. And then there's the one um, non-American in the bunch, Ian Hart, who at the time was best known for playing John Lennon in a couple of movies, um, plays the guy who, with Barry Pepper, first visits Dean's home um, when they're trying to find out what Dean knows about Daniel Zavitz. And then the tech guys. You've got Jamie Kennedy from the Scream movies. Mm-hmm. You've got Seth Green, who I would know best as Oz from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Jack Black before he became big. Right, you know, Seth so Green you, isn't even credited. Yes. And so you've got all these young actors, you know, working at the CIA. And the other in- interesting dynamic about that, other than the fact that the young guys are all tech savvy and they're all played by pretty idiosyncratic actors. So you don't think you're seeing a bunch of bland white faces all the time. But speaking of white, you know, most of the bad guys or all the bad guys in this movie are white. Mm -hmm. And most of the good guys are African-American. You know, Robert Dean, Will Smith, his wife, Regina King. And you could argue Rachel Banks is a little compromised, but she's overall considered a good person mm-hmm. played by Lisa Bonet. The only really good white people in this movie are Brill, and he's sort of in the middle. And um, Daniel Zavitz, Jason Lee, who gets killed, and a partner at the firm at Dean's firm that he's friendly with planned by James LaGrosse. So that's an interesting dynamic that you wouldn't expect to see in a studio movie made back in 1998. Right. And, and it was one of those things that I did notice as I'm watching. And again, this is a rewatch for me. I, I, I had seen this, uh, I had already moved to Baltimore when I'd seen it. So, um, but but still at that time you know you don't quite pick up on these things and and you know in in my rewatch i was like wow there's a lot of up and coming actors in this thing this is like one of those films where you just see a lot of you know, like young bodies and you realize man they're going to be like a whole lot bigger later on and you know one that you didn't mention because she didn't really fall into that you know either or kind of situation and a gun as uh, as um reynolds wife 
who really right. wasn't really too huge at the time. And then all of a sudden she was on Breaking Bad and everybody knew who she was. Yes. Now, um, I mentioned before that one of the things that I'm not really a big fan of Tony Scott or Jared Bruckheimer movies is the fact that they're big and loud. And normally you feel after watching them, or at least I feel this way, that you've just spent two hours of your life getting hit over the head with a shovel over and over and over again. And there is a lot of wild camera work in this movie. The cinematographer on the movie was uh, someone named Dan Mandel. And then the editor was uh, Chris Lebenzon. But here, the fast cutting and the swirling camera work, because we're meant to see a lot of this as surveillance footage, it works for the context of the story. It does. I mean, you, 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 um, I mean, you, you, as far as the story is concerned, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief because, you know, some of the things that you see is not necessarily, well, maybe they can do it now, but they couldn't necessarily do it then. And certainly when you point a satellite dish at the earth, you're not picking up, you know, visual images and, and certainly not at the, you know, sort of resolution that they're talking about, especially when they say, well, one meter resolution, you can't see a person at one meter resolution, but okay. It's a, it's a terminology goof and I, yeah, we'll live with that. But, but, uh, that, you know, what I know what you're going to say, the words fridge logic are about to come out of your mouth because yeah, that's, it's true. It's like one of those things that kind of occurred to me later is like, you know, that what he's saying there doesn't really make sense. The picture of the satellite doesn't necessarily make sense, you know, but it wasn't something that I really didn't, that I really thought about until afterwards. So, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll call it that, but it's still kind of scary to think that some of that stuff is out there. And, you know, you're talking about, this was what, 22 years ago. And certainly the technology has changed since then. And I'm sure that there is a lot of stuff that is available that, that it, that is out there that is not available to the general public that, you know, that they've got going on and that they know way more than they are supposed to do. And, you know, not that I'm a conspiracy theorist in that, in that regard, but I am a realist in that sense. I remember when GPS was really two different systems. There was one for civilians and there was one for the military. Okay. And the military grade GPS was about what we get now as civilians. So I can't even imagine like the level of precision that they have in the GPS system at the military level. Yeah, it is very scary. Now, there is one sequence in here that I do cringe at, and it's not for, as you say, fridge logic, because that I can always forgive if I'm engaged in a movie. Rather, it's the scene where Dean is in the hotel after Brill has left him for the fir- on the first meeting, and he's trying to escape while Reynolds' men are chasing him, and he bursts into this room that's owned, that's um, this Asian couple is staying in. Yeah. Uh, the pretense <laughs> of being someone from hotel hospitality. And 
you know, I don't know if Scott and Bruckheimer thought, okay, we need to play to our base in some way, or they just weren't thinking at all. But that whole sequence is completely insensitive and offensive. Well, it's that. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense, especially since, you know, like he's shedding his clothes. Now you've got the the, the Chinese woman who's just like kind of egging him on, thinking it's a strip show that's been arranged for her somehow. And like, I, I was like so glad when that scene finally ended. It was just, oh, no, no, no. This is poor. This is no, no, please end now. <laughs> yeah. Just no, jump out that, the window already. <laughs> yeah. No, it is a blight on an otherwise very good movie. Mm -hmm. So um, we should mention, uh, or unless you have anything more to say about either of these movies. No, I think I'm, I'm pretty much ready to wrap it up here. Okay. So Bullworth is streaming on stars as well as stars through Amazon and direct TV and you can rent or buy it through Microsoft, Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, and a few other places. And Enemy of the State is available to stream through HBO, HBO Max, HBO Now, through Amazon, and DirecTV, and is available to rent or buy through Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, and other major um, renter streaming services. Fantastic. So what's happening next time? Well, before we get to next time, oh. to wrap up our Sorkin Fest, we're going to talk just, a, or I'm going to talk, I don't know if Quad has seen this yet. I have not. Just I a saved little, <laughs> Just a little bit about the movie that inspired me to bring up this Sorkin Fest in the first place. That is... Sorkin's most recent movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which is currently on Netflix after having a limited theatrical release. Now, I liked this movie with reservations. I think that as far as entertainment goes, it's very well done. Have you watched it yet, Claude? No, like I said, I have been saving myself for this. Okay, well, I won't spoil it exactly for you, but there is one joke that he had used on the West Wing that he reuses in the movie, and you'll know it when you hear it. And I would say that as I have gone further left in my politics than Sorkin is right now, that politically speaking, I had quite a few quibbles with the movie. You know, I think that if he wants to say that someone in the Hall 60s movement was wrong, that Abby Hoffman was the wrong target to go after, even if for the purposes of the movie, he's somehow using it for dramatic conflict. And I would also say that the movie sort of holds back on what the what William Kunstler and the defense team surrounding the Chicago Seven were doing 
at the time, they were trying to put the whole system on trial rather than just defend these guys against the charges that were brought against them by the Nixon administration. Still, you don't go to movies or watch fictional movies for a history lesson. You go to watch them, hopefully, to think about what you're watching. And I think the movie does overall a good job of making you think. Yeah. And I'm sure like, as with so many other movies that, that deal with historical events, you know, you're going to have to kind of zero in you're and, and, and cut out a, a few of the things. If you want people to get a good handle on what's happening over here, well, you're just going to have to not look too hard at what's happening over there, you know, cause otherwise it just gets, I mean, life is complex and messy, and what we want is a fairly straightforward story here. And and so sometimes, you know, just in the name of clarity of the tale, you're going to have to leave a few things out. Okay, so now, next time, yes. since we are recording this about a week after the presidential election was eventually declared a winner and we can hopefully be assured that the apocalypse is not going to come any time in the immediate future <laughs> we can sort of look back at a distance and talk about post-apocalyptic movies and we're going to talk about two of my favorite of them 12 Monkeys, which was directed by Terry Gilliam, and Children of Men, which was directed by Alfonso, Alfonso Cuaron, and is my favorite movie of the aughts or the noughts, or whatever you want to call the first decade of the millennium. And 12 Monkeys, you can, um, you can stream through uh, HBO or HBO Max if you've got that. Um, or HBO Now through Amazon. And, um, of course, you can rent or buy it through the usual channels. Children of Men, you can actually see on Peacock with ads for free, or you can rent or buy it through the usual channels. And you can reach us at all times by emailing us through the email address wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And you can find me, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And you can find me on the Twitter machine under my own name, Claude Call, or you can look at and listen to my other podcast, uh, How Good It Is, which you can find over at howgooditis.com. And this show is also on the Twitter machine at Words and Movies Pod. Uh, you're going to find the specific, it's going to be words underscore movies pod. Okay, so we'll see you next time. Thanks. Becky, take us out, please. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening.